The Scottish Mortgage Podcast Invest in Progress is back. Join the managers and their guests as they go behind the scenes of some of the most innovative companies of our time. Companies like Climeworks, who are pioneering technology to remove carbon dioxide from the air. Or Zobi, who are at the forefront of a new era of aviation developing electric air taxis. Or Aurora, who are building software so that trucks can drive themselves. Hear from the leaders of these exceptional businesses on their vision and what the world could look like if they succeed. Available now on all major platforms. Your capital is at risk. Hello, my name is John Schaefer and I'm here today with Bailey Gifford American Manager Gary Robinson. Gary, thanks so much for joining me today. Pleasure to be here, John. You run one of the few US funds that's managed to beat the S&P last year. How did you generate that outperformance and what stocks were leading the way? If you look at the, the performance last year, it was actually relatively broadly spread. A number of different companies um, addressing different industries and with different business models contributed to, to that outperformance. One of the biggest contributors won't come as a surprise to anyone. It was NVIDIA. Um, the GPU chip maker, which is benefiting from the investments in AI. Um, but alongside that, you had companies like Shopify, um, which helps merchants set up shops online. Um, the Trade Desk, which is a digital advertising uh, demand-side platform. Um, and Duolingo, the language learning, mm -hmm. learning app. So it was quite a broad spread of growth companies that, that helped drive that outperformance. And some of those names are, are, are not necessarily Magnificent Seven names. So maybe you could go into a bit of depth about those kind of companies. And I, I don't find that terminology particularly helpful because you, know, you look at the group of companies that have been deemed to be the Magnificent Seven, and there are seven very different companies that um, don't really sit alongside each other for any other reason than their historic performance. We own four of them um, in, in the portfolio. So um, NVIDIA um, is, is the largest um, of, of the holdings. Then we also have um, Amazon, uh, Tesla, and Meta, um, which we bought for the, the fund last year. And then there's another three um, which are put into that classification, which um, we don't own in the portfolio. So that's Apple, um, Microsoft, and Alphabet. I think when you know thinking about the, the drivers of performance, you know, you know, the, the, those those companies have have been positive contributors, but the the contribution has been actually much broader than that. And I think looking forward, one of the things to bear in mind with these sort of classifications is they are inherently backward looking. You know, these companies are part of that grouping because they performed well historically, but that doesn't necessarily tell you anything about what the companies that will perform well in the future will look like. So. You know, look at a couple of the constituents of the, the Magnificent Seven. You've got Tesla. Um, if you go back 10 years, Tesla's market cap was just $30 billion. NVIDIA, 10 years ago, its market cap was just $10 billion. So these companies were way, way off the sort of radar of investors at that point in time. And, and what we ought to be doing at this point is discussing what are the companies that are out there today that got the potential to be those companies in the future, not, not what are the ones that have been those companies in the past. Have you got any on your kind of hit list that you think are going to be the, the next NVIDIA's, the next Tesla's? This is what we're trying to do. I mean, this is the sort of philosophy of the fund. It's to run a relatively concentrated portfolio of 40 to 50 names for the American mm. fund um, and, and try and identify companies that we think have got the potential to be outliers over the long term. We call these companies exceptional growth companies. So, so this is really what we're driving at with this portfolio. And could you be specific? Could you maybe name what a couple of, a couple of names that you think are going to be the next big thing? I think for any company to be purchased for this portfolio, that it ha you know, we need to be able to see a path to at least a two and a half times return hmm. over, over the next five years. And, and ideally, we'd like to be able to see a return even higher than that. You know, I, th I think you can um, infer from any company that's a big holding in, in, in the portfolio that, that that's a company that we're enthusiastic about. So, you know, I mentioned a few of them already. Shopify, mm -hmm. that's a company that, um, you know, is, is addressing the, 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 the e-commerce market. That's an absolutely massive market. Um, Shopify is 
quite a big company already, but there's still lots of scope for that company to continue to grow. Duolingo, um, the language learning app, that's a pretty, pretty small business today. Um, you know, it's a sort of approximately $8 billion market cap company, half a billion dollars of revenues, but it's addressing a, um, a market opportunity which is in the tens of billions of dollars in size if you just look at the language learning opportunity. And they're starting to move into verticals now like maths, education, music education, which could expand that addressable market. Let's look at the performance over a, a longer period. You know, mm. over three years, the fund is actually down more than 12%. Looking at last year, did you have to change your strategy to, to achieve that alpha that you did? Yeah, so performance over the last few years has been um, disappointing. Um, we had a very strong year for performance in 2020 um, on the back of COVID and lockdowns, which drove a shift towards the digital economy, which many, is where many of our companies um, operate. Then post-COVID, um, you know, the, the, the economy opened up again um, and, and that's impacted on a, a number of stocks in the portfolio. There's a couple of things I'd point out that have been contributors to that, that underperformance. The first is just um, a valuation reset. So as we were coming out of COVID, um, there was a lot of supply chain disruption that was created by COVID. Um, there was a lot of stimulus spending from the government that drove inflation. Uh, that prompted the Fed to raise interest rates at an almost unprecedented rate um, uh, and that raised the cost of um, capital um, and that rise in the cost of capital caused a, uh, caused a revaluation of assets and long duration assets, assets which have their cash flows far in the future were disproportionately impacted by that um, and we own long duration assets, growth stocks are long duration assets because they're growing a lot of the cash flows in the, are, are in the future and we saw those valuations come down. The second part of it was just that COVID-related volatility. You know, there was a tailwind in 2020, but that became a headwind for a lot of businesses in the portfolio. I think both of those things are largely behind us now. Um, you know, interest mm -hmm. rates, I think, have, have probably peaked and may even come down from here. So that valuation headwind has, has come out of the numbers and may even become a tailwind. And that COVID-related volatility has largely worked its way through the economy now. So I think we're at a point where that you know, the fundamental strengths of the business and the portfolio can shine through. But be that as it may, you've been tracking the S&P 500 as your benchmark and you've struggled to outperform that over the longer term, over three and five years. And it hasn't been really that bad if you've been invested in the S&P 500 over quite a volatile period. Why haven't you beaten it? Yeah, I think, um, you know, we've been through a really unusual period with the transition out of COVID and the um, rise in um, the, the discount rate. And, and that's, mm. that's acted as a headwind for, for valuations. You know, what we've seen from data going back over the very long term is um, that over very long periods of time, the companies which grow their fundamentals the fastest are the ones which perform the best. Um, and, and that's pretty robust over time. Um, and, you know, you look at the fundamental performance of the stocks in the portfolio and that remains very strong. So, you know, looking at last year, the median revenue growth rate for a stock in the American fund was 23% which is way, way faster than the index. And you were confident given the market opportunities these companies address, the um, uh, competitive advantages and the financial strength that they'll continue to grow at above average rates. And that eventually will be reflected in, in the share prices of those stocks and in the portfolio performance. More broadly, are you a bit concerned that US large caps have become wildly overvalued? I don't think so. Um, first of all, I mean, you know, what we're trying to do is identify a small number of exceptional growth companies from um, from the market, so we're not buying exposure to the market, so it's not really how we, we think about things. But when we look at some of the large caps we, we own in the portfolio, I actually think the valuations look rather reasonable. So, you know, Meta, um, for example, that's one of the, the, the biggest companies in the index. That's trading on 23 times um, earnings, um, growing its revenues in the teens, um, and that 
multiple incorporates quite big losses in its reality labs division. So the core part of the business mm -hmm. is actually, arguably, if you strip out those losses even cheaper than that, look at a company like NVIDIA, look at the levels of growth that company's been posting, it's trading on just 30 times earnings, which you know is a high multiple relative to the market, but is not a high multiple relative to the growth of that business. Or look at Amazon, which I'd look at on more of a sort of free cash flow basis, given that the business is managed for free cash flow. If you look out um, to next year, 2025, then um, it's trading on about 20 times free cash flow. Um, for one of the highest quality businesses in the world, which still has a lot of growth runway ahead. So no, I'm, I'm not concerned about mm. that at all. Do you think that the Magnificent Seven stocks will lead the way again this year, or do you think there's going to be better opportunities out elsewhere? Over 12 months, I don't know. Like, I think it's yeah. incredibly difficult to predict outcomes over that sort of time frame. Um, over the, the next sort of five to 10 years, um, I think we'll be talking about a different collection of companies, the famous five, I don't know what we'll call it at <laughs> sure. that point in time. But um, I think some of the companies that are in that cl classification could potentially be, be in there. Um, but I think there'll be other companies that, that are much smaller today that will form part of that grouping. And what we're trying to do is, is identify companies that have got that potential. I wanted to drill down into your, your top holding. I understand that's still Shopify yeah. um, as of now. I mean, that's a pretty popular stock across several Bailey Gifford portfolios. Why is it your top holding in this fund? When we are looking to identify exceptional growth companies, there are really three ingredients that we look for. Um, and those companies that give us conviction and their ability to be much bigger in future than they are today. I mean, ultimately, what we're looking for are companies that have got the potential to grow faster for longer and at higher rates of return. Um, and I think Shopify's got the ingredients that, that can deliver those sorts of outcomes. So uh, number one, market opportunity. Um, it's operating in the e-commerce space. Mm. It's absolutely massive. It's almost sort of open-ended in terms of its scale. Um, two um, is, is competitive position. Um, and the ability to, um, to get stronger as it get, gets bigger. This is a true ecosystem business. It's a true platform, and the bigger Shopify gets, the stronger it gets. The bigger it gets, the more um, developers want to develop apps for the platform. The bigger it gets, the better terms it can negotiate from yep. suppliers who provide services to its merchants on the platform. The bigger it gets, the more it can invest in R&D and the more new products it can bring out for its platform. The third one's culture. I think Shopify's got one of the strongest cultures of any of the companies that we own in the portfolio. It's founder run. Toby Lutka, the founder, operates um, and runs this business genuinely for the very long term. Yep. Um, and he understands that to build a business which is going to thrive in the long term, you need to be cognizant of the needs of all of the stakeholders in the business and try and balance those needs. So looking at Shopify since its IPO in 2018, it's had pretty healthy returns. You're up 627% if you were investing from IPO. I mean, mm. is there an argument that it might be a bit too hot, a bit overvalued now? I don't think so. It's, um, you know, one of the things I really like about um, Shopify is that they've um, optimized for um, you know building the scale of the platform before they've optimized for really monetizing the platform um, and so there are a lot of products and um, services that Shopify off offers through its platform where it's either not charging for the service right now or it's not charging much for the service right now so I think that uh, you know has got the potential mm -hmm. to act as quite a big driver for for revenues over the next five to ten years so I think there's a lot of untapped potential in the business still. Is there a risk from um, maybe a larger incumbents like the likes of Google that could sort of copy Shopify's model really there? Actually, going back in time, um, you know, one of the key moments in Shopify's history, Amazon used to do this. Right. Um, and Amazon gave up okay. um, and recommended that its customers migrate to Shopify instead. And I think we probably regret that decision today. But um, it's not a straightforward thing to do. It's a very different 
um, you know, customer base. It's a very different use case from, from, from Google. More broadly, do you think e-commerce is a good place to be and is it a good place to invest in? Yeah, well, we have still have quite significant exposure to um, uh, the, the e-commerce theme in the portfolio. We've got companies like, um, I've mentioned Shopify, I've mentioned Amazon, we've also got DoorDash. Um, you know, which does restaurant delivery and um, other, um, you know, um, local delivery. Um, so um, we, th we still think there's quite a lot of runway in, in that. Tesla is still a pretty prominent feature in your mm. portfolio. And obviously that was a pretty big winner for you during the pandemic years. But are you as enthusiastic on it now? Yes. Um, you know, I think we're, we're still only about 10% penetration of, of EVs into the auto market. So most of the growth is still ahead. I think in future, most cars will be electric vehicles. Um, and I think Tesla's as well placed as any other company to ad address that opportunity. You know, it's had a wonderful um, period of growth on the back of the launch of the Model Y and the Model 3. And um, we've got the Cybertruck, which is just about to start ramping. That's probably not going to be as big a contributor to the top line as those previous products were. Um, but it, it won't be insignificant. And then further down the line, we'll have their lower price vehicle. And I think that could be transformational for the company. Um, we're probably a couple of years away from that one though. You're a big backer of Elon Musk's businesses. I mean, we can talk about SpaceX later on, but um, you know, are there any concerns at all about his some, somewhat volatile persona? Elon Musk, it, it takes a certain type of personality to take the proceeds from selling a business um, and then invest half of it into an electric car vehicle when no one thought that was going to work, and half of it into a rocket business when people thought he was crazy to do that. Um, and so he, he's an iconoclast. Um, I think there are certain aspects of, of his personality that are very well suited to breakthrough innovation, but those um, aspects of his personality also um, lead to him not wanting to conform to, to social norms, which can hmm. you know, at times be um, unhelpful on Twitter. Let's move on to NVIDIA. I mean, there's, there's a lot of concern about that being in bubble territory. Um, you've been a, a, a big backer as, as a house for, for a while in NVIDIA. What do you say to that? The industry is currently supply constrained. So NVIDIA is um, selling as many chips as it can produce. Um, there's massive demand for AI, and it feels like we're much closer to the beginning of this than we are to the end of this. Largest models in AI are increasing about tenfold in size um, for every generation. The demand for compute power is increasing exponentially over time. Um, you know, today, the biggest models are probably in the order of sort of $300 million. You know, this year, we may have billion-dollar models. But you go out one generation, we're talking $10 billion models. And then you go out next, the next generation, we're talking $100 billion models. One of the things we've seen so far with AI is that you get out what you put in. So the bigger the models are, the more powerful they are. So long as those scaling laws hold for the next two generations, and they've held for the previous five, six, or seven generations, then I think we're going to be in a situation where the industry is supply constrained for quite some time. You said at the top of that response that we're kind of at the start of AI, really, this AI innovation. Mm -hmm. It's, it's often hard to actually see which companies are going to be the winners in five, ten years. How do you speak to that? Yeah, I mean, I think we, we need to approach this with, with humility. Um, I think, you know, we have high conviction that AI is going to be very important, but, you know, it's, it's still early days and, and the market's still developing. So I think we need to keep an open mind and we need to be willing to, to change our mind, um, you know, if, if, if evidence contradicts our, our, our current views. Right now, we, we see um, NVIDIA as being a leader in, in, in the, the, the sort of... Um, area of, of supplying you know, the most critical, one of the most critical components. It's 
you know, arguably the only game in town right now. Um, AMD's a pretty distant second. It, for me, is a supplier of picks and shovels to, to the gold rush. You know, you, you go beyond NVIDIA and you get to the sort of the cloud layer, then you have the large language model layer, then above that you have the application layer. I think the application layer is, is um, very immature right now and pretty uncertain. We're seeing um, generative AI being used by some incumbent businesses that have a lot of proprietary data. I think it could actually act as, as, as a reinforcer of competitive advantage for some of these companies. I'd put Duolingo into that mm. category. I'd put Shopify into that category. I'd put Meta into that category. I think that this, this technology will lead to new companies being created, new business models emerging. Um, and we're not really quite at the stage yet. I think we're, you know, we're, we're willing to say, you know, we think we found the winners in, in that. We're in a big year for politics. Obviously, you've got the US elections coming up this year. Are you positioning your portfolio any differently? Are there any concerns in, in the lead up to that? We're not making any changes to the portfolio in the lead up to that. I think this is another topic that we have to approach with the appropriate degree of humility. Um, you know, the last time that, that Trump was elected president, I think most people expected the stock market to go down and it went up a lot. And so yeah. even if you know what's going to happen, it doesn't necessarily mean you know what's going to happen with the stock market. And we, we don't feel like this is an area where, you know, we um, have the greatest uh, we, we don't feel like this is where um, our, 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 the strongest part of our edge really is. It's much more in the bottom-up stock selection. What about changes that you made to your fund last year? You talked about bottom-up stock selection. Were, were there stocks that you dropped or, or bought last year? Yeah, so we added Meta back to the portfolio last year. And we're quite excited about the potential for AI to strengthen the competitive position there, but also to potentially boost the growth of, mm -hmm. of that business by helping to increase engagement. We actually held Meta in the portfolio going back a few years, um, and we sold out. At the time, we were a bit worried about relevance. Um, okay. You know, TikTok was emerging as a, as a competitive threat to the company. And also, that was at the point where, you know, the, the regulatory scrutiny of, of Facebook was really at its peak. We think, you know, on both of those fronts, Meta's response to TikTok has been really impressive with Reels. That's, you know, they've scaled that business now. It's a serious contributor to revenues and a serious competitor to to TikTok, and then that the regulated landscape is probably a little bit less intense than it was previously. So you combine that with the excitement around AI, and we were keen to buy back in. Um, I mean, where, where do you think the growth protect, potential is with, with Meta? I, th I think the growth potential with Meta comes from increasing engagement on the platform, okay. and making adverts more relevant um, over time using technology, and, and through that increasing the, the, the price. Um, and also potentially um, through monetization of the messaging platforms, um, WhatsApp and Messenger, which are still at the very, very early stages of monetization. And what other changes did you make to your portfolio? We bought a few new holdings to the portfolio. One interesting one that I'd highlight is a company called Insulit, which makes um, pumps for diabetes. Um, this is quite an interesting one because it was caught up in the um, concerns around um, the weight loss drugs, GLP-1s. Sure. Um, so the, the shares sold off a lot because um, I think the market was worried that the um, uh, GLP-1s would potentially shrink the market for um, Insulate's diabetes pumps. But actually, the vast majority of Insulate's revenues now and probably in the future um, come from the type 1 diabetes market. And, and we are of the view that by understanding the mechanism of action there, that, that GLP-1s are unlikely to have much of an impact on that market. And then even with type 2 diabetes, um, it's not totally clear that you know the emergence of these new class of GLP-1s is going to have a material impact on on that market. So it's a company we've yeah. been monitoring. Um, we'd met prior to this, but we felt like we were being presented with an opportunity um, on the back of some of these, these concerns. Any other, any other movements, any, any stocks that you sold? One we sold recently was um, Zoom. 
um, which um, yeah, we've held in the portfolio for, for quite a long time. We bought into that one prior to the pandemic, um, obviously saw a massive increase in usage during the pandemic, but then growth stalled post-pandemic. And we were patient with that one, but ultimately we, the, the company's really struggled to grow in the face of the competitive threat from Microsoft's teams. And there hasn't been a lot of innovation on the core product. So. Um, so we, we sold out of that one to fund other ideas. Yeah, was there a bit of a regret that perhaps you, you could have sold at the peak there? There are lots of decisions which would have been better if we'd had perfect hindsight. Of course, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to uh, look a little bit at the trust. You also run the US Growth Trust. Could you speak to the crossovers between the closed-ended vehicle and your open-ended vehicle? The US Growth Trust, um, we launched that in 2018. Um, and the purpose really was um, you know, we wanted a vehicle um, that could invest across both the public and the private spectrum. The US Growth Trust can invest up to 50% of its assets into private companies. Today, it has 33% of its assets invested in 24 private companies. The other two thirds of the portfolio is very, very similar to the Bailey Gifford American Fund. Um, so it's really, it's, it's, the way to think about it is almost like the, the American Fund with the private company exposure. But we run the two portfolios in a very similar way. It's, a, it's the same team um, mm. and the philosophy and, and process is, is very, very similar. And, and your top holding in that fund is actually Elon Musk's business. It's SpaceX. SpaceX. Yes. And, uh, is, why are you so confident in that business? I think SpaceX is one of the most interesting, exciting companies in the world. So SpaceX sends things into space on rockets. Before SpaceX came along, this was largely an endeavor of nation states. Um, and it seemed like quite a, a, a ludicrous idea that a private company would, would be able to do this. But not only did Elon Musk do this with SpaceX, he completely revolutionized the industry by making rockets reusable. So prior to SpaceX, the economics of sending stuff into orbit was dreadful because what you were doing effectively, the equivalent in the aviation industry would be flying from London to New York and scrapping the plane. Can you imagine the ticket cost? Elon Musk's SpaceX has made rockets reusable which has dramatically lowered the cost of putting mass into orbit. Um, and on the back of that, SpaceX has captured about 80% of the launch market in terms of the amount of mass put into orbit. So it's really built a really strong, really dominant position um, in, in this industry. And it's using that dominant position to build a communication business called Starlink. So Starlink is a constellation of low Earth orbit, high bandwidth satellites, which there are thousands of them up in space already um, to enable you to access um, 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 fast internet anywhere, almost anywhere in the world. And we tend to think that, you know, doesn't everyone have fast internet if you live in sort of big metropolitan mm -hmm. cities in the West? But actually, there are a lot of places, even in like countries like America, um, you know, in, in, in rural America, which have slow or, or no internet. So there's a massive opportunity to deliver um, fast internet to underserved areas via uh, this service. And they've already scaled to over 2 million users. We think they're only just scratching the surface on that. And I think Elon Musk said the Starlink business has already reached cash flow break even. And where's the exit opportunity on SpaceX? Um, it, are you seeing it as an IPO opportunity or perhaps to sell it on a, on a secondary market somehow? I mean, there's so much growth potential there, we don't want to exit. Okay. So um, and we're, we're, we're very happy to be patient with that one. Um, Musk has hinted that he may spin off list Starlink at some point, but we don't have any visibility into the timeline of that, but that would be one way that we would potentially realize value from this. As a house, how much access do you get to Elon Musk? Are you speaking to him relatively regularly? We have spoken to him, I've spoken to him in the past over the phone and um, colleagues of mine have, have met him face to face. I wanted to look a little bit at the discount on the trust. I mean, you're sitting at a 14% discount to your NAV. How are you looking to close that? Part of the, the, the discount reflects a, a point in time. Um, you know, you look across the investment trust sector and discounts 
um, have widened across the sector. I think that's partly down to risk appetite and partly down to where we are in, in the cycle. The question is, you know, for us is what, what's going to close the discount. And I think the discount partly comes from, you know, some question marks around valuations on mm. private companies. And we've talked a lot about the robust process we have in place. Yeah. Um, but I think as more companies come to public markets and prove out those valuations, that'll that'll give people a little bit more confidence. And, and, and the board have been engaging in, in some buybacks. So you think there's an element of negative sentiment in the market around your private holdings in, in, in that trust and that, uh, in terms of the valuation, uh, uh, as you said there? Not just our private holdings. I just think illiquid instruments in general in, a, yeah. in, in this sort of market environment are, are attracting quite big discounts, and you can see that with the private equity trusts. Well, Gary, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, John. The Scottish Mortgage Podcast Invest in Progress is back. Join the managers and their guests as they go behind the scenes of some of the most innovative companies of our time. Companies like Climeworks, who are pioneering technology to remove carbon dioxide from the air. Or Zobi, who are at the forefront of a new era of aviation developing electric air taxis. Or Aurora, who are building software so that trucks can drive themselves. Hear from the leaders of these exceptional businesses on their vision and what the world could look like if they succeed. Available now on all major platforms. Your capital is at risk.